And now, for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, but five, or five. What's up, list nerds? I hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving. I hope you watched a lot of great movies over the holiday weekend. I know I did. I am your host, ex-video store clerk, undiscovered screenwriter, and fellow list nerd, Jason Kleberg. And if this is your first time here, Force 5 is a show where I force my guests to come up with a movie-themed top five list, and then we reveal our picks on air. My sparring partner for this episode is Oriana Nudo, co-host of the Hollywoodography podcast, a lovely person who knows a hell of a lot more about boxing films than I do. She was an amazing guest. I highly suggest, highly suggest that when this episode is over, you go and check out her show, dive into some Paul Newman. Uh, Hollywoodography is a really, really great deep dive into those classic films and uh, people's filmographies. So make sure to check that out. All right, last show's topic was top five Blu-rays of 2022. I had Ryan from Disc Connected on, and with so many amazing boutique labels putting out films these days, we were bound to miss some. And of course, the internet told me what we missed. Not in the top five. Did they get it right? Excuse my language. Okay. Hell no. (laughs) I can't believe. Who, who made that list? Who made that? That's blasphemous. Don't look at me. That's blasphemous. For this one, I actually went to Reddit and asked what the best Blu-rays of 2022 were. And I've got a list of a lot of amazing discs. I'm just going to run through a couple of them. Gunk Order said Arrow's True Romance package, which I have the limited edition of, and it looks fabulous. The Dude with the Tude 27 said The Celebration from 1998 from Criterion. It's a great movie and probably my favorite design they have ever released for their packaging. Murder Ballads said Severin's release of Out of the Blue. Film Eyed said Double Indemnity on 4K. That one's from Criterion. Russ, Russ, Russ. A couple S's on there said uh, The Warriors from Imprint and the Police Story Trilogy in 4K. Cosmic Astro Bastard, great name, said Vinegar Syndrome's The Werewolf vs. The Vampire Women is breathtaking. That one I have on my shelf. I have not cracked it open yet. I got to check that one out. Derelict1212 said Third Window Films' Obayashi 80s set, which I hadn't even heard of. Goldieboy94 said the two Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde Warner archive releases. Ferg182 said A24's release of Lamb on 4K. Kitty Pliskin said BFI's Get Carter on 4K. Insurance Aggressive said Vampire, a limited edition box from Eureka Masters of Cinema. Super Megafauna said Killer's Kiss and the Killing 4Ks from Kino. And Mr. Klein Chan is missing Walker and Power of the Dog from Criterion. And then they gave a shout out to Lionsgate's The Limey Blu-ray Steelbook, which is a gorgeous steelbook. And finally, JYD1974, Junkyard Dog, nice. Fun City Editions, Natural Enemies. If you want to be a part of the show, I asked this question on social media, at Force5Pod on Twitter for now, at Force5Podcast on Instagram, and your comment might make it to the show. All right, on to what I watched since I last talked to you. Uh, Started watching Wednesday, the new Netflix series. My wife watched the whole thing. She said it was pretty good. I watched the first episode, and it was pretty good. It was pretty entertaining, Um, kind of like more teen-focused, but uh, it almost felt like a like an Adams Family version of the Mean Girls, of a Mean Girls thing, which uh, not a bad thing. The English I started watching, that's an Amazon Prime show. It has Emily Blunt as a, a traveler who's uh, trying to make her way from 
like the Louisiana Plains to Wyoming. And it's pretty interesting. It's uh, kind of scary, kind of gory, um, pretty violent, all kinds of stuff at every turn. Nobody to be trusted. So I'm, I'm interested in this. I'm like three episodes in. Pretty good. I also watched the Guardians of the Galaxy Holiday Special, which is inoffensive fun. It's, it's good if you like the Guardians of the Galaxy. It's a nice little 45-minute hangout for Christmas with great music and a lot of Kevin Bacon, which is both funny and just, I mean, Kevin Bacon's on screen, so you can't really go wrong there. Guardians of the Galaxy Holiday Special, it's a good one. Now, it's starting to get cold here, not as cold as other places, but, you know, for the Bay Area, it's getting pretty cold. So I wanted to watch something in some snow, and uh, I pulled one off the shelf that I hadn't seen before, 1985's Runaway Train. They escaped together. They battled the elements. They achieved the impossible. Smile, man, we're free! But their train to freedom was out of control. I don't know what happened, but there's no engineer on this train. There's nobody on this train but us. The brake shoes have burned off. The overspeed control must have gotten screwed up. Engineers do not just croak. You want to be a tough guy? You want to be a legend? Go back! Sucker, come on! Manny is a convict who's spent the last three years locked in solitary confinement, and he's just won a civil rights case to land him back in Gen Pop. Rankin, the warden at Alaska's Stonehaven Maximum Security Prison, has it in for him, so much so that he orchestrates an assassination during a prison boxing match. Manny survives and decides that the only way he's going to survive going forward is to escape. Buck, a young prisoner who idolizes him, helps him break out. After a taxing jaunt through the snowy Alaskan wilderness, the two hop onto a train undetected. Unfortunately for them and the female assistant conductor, the train conductor dies. He has a heart attack, leaving the train barreling down the track. With an off-site railroad crew trying to ideate on ways to stop the rig and the warden's helicopter in hot pursuit, the three must survive the ride, if they can survive each other. Runaway Train was originally written by Akira Kurosawa after reading a 1963 Life magazine article about a runaway train. He was set to film the picture in upstate New York in 1966, but funding fell through, and they realized they couldn't film it up near Buffalo in the frickin' winter because there was just too much snow. So he went on to work on Tora Tora Tora. He had intended for Peter Fonda and Peter Falk to play the leads. And then later in 1982, the script resurfaced and the Nippon Herald Company, who owned the screenplay, asked Francis Ford Coppola to recommend a director, and he recommended Andrei Konchalovsky. Now, Konchalovsky had been working in Russia for a while, but was in production on his first American film, Maria's Lovers. John Voight and Eric Roberts were cast as Manny and Buck. Voigt was familiar with Konchalovsky, who he'd wanted to direct Rhinestone Heights in 1979, a film that was actually never made. Karen Allen, who was just coming off of Starman, was tapped for the role of Sarah, but ultimately dropped out of the project, leaving the door open for Rebecca DeMornay, who had just hit it big with her role in Risky Business. Filming went from upstate New York instead to Montana, with second unit footage shot on location in Alaska, and the music was provided by Trevor Jones, a composer who had just had hits with The Dark Crystal and Excalibur. Warden Rankin's reaction to Manny escaping is unusual to say the least. It's almost as if he's glad he's on the lam because now he has a chance to hunt him down and kill him legally. He sees Manny as an animal, not a person, 
But as Manny corrects someone else late in the film, he's not an animal. He's worse. He's a human. It's easy to see the cover of the film and assume it's an action movie. It's got all the right elements. A prison break, an unleashed speeding train, a warden who will stop at nothing until his subjects are dead, and a railway crew stumped with how to stop the train, but this is not an action film. The excitement in Runaway Train comes from within the cabin as the three people on board try to navigate each other. The real spark here comes between John Voight and Eric Roberts. Voight plays Manny with a cold calculation, everybody a pawn that he would easily discard if necessary. He's a bully. He's a pessimist. Win, lose, what's the difference? Roberts, on the other hand, is the excitable young fawn who will do anything to win Manny's approval. He's the annoying little brother that always tried to tag along when you were little. Once Sarah, an eternal optimist, joins the three, there's a shift in the dynamic as Buck realizes that Manny might not be the hero he and the other prisoners thought he was while he was locked behind his cell door for three years. While the film isn't necessarily an action movie, the action scenes are really well done. When somebody's trying to traverse the icy engine, there's a definite sense of speed and danger. The cinematography, shot by Alan Hume, captures both the beautiful and unforgiving side of the Alaskan wilderness, culminating with a shot of one of the characters riding off into the sunset, although not in the way you might think. Runaway Train is a very good movie. It's thrilling, but it's also thought-provoking and emotional. I almost had tears in my eyes during one scene in which three characters just kind of lose hope and death starts to seem like a foregone conclusion. As they huddle in a corner together, both for the camaraderie and for the warmth, I found my body kind of balling up on the couch under my blanket. There's an amazing score underlining the back half of the film that's haunting and actually sounded like kind of a precursor to Platoon's score, which would come out a year later. This film also really highlights the talent that Eric Roberts had. He had a hell of a run, starting with his Golden Globe-nominated performance in Star 80, followed up with The Pope of Greenwich Village, then The Coca-Cola Kid, culminating with a supporting actor nomination for this role. Runaway Train is a no-brainer recommendation. Janet Maslin from the New York Times agreed, saying, quote, John Voight gives a fiery performance, end quote, and Gary Franklin saying, quote, the most gripping and entertaining film I've seen in many months, maybe years, end quote. Make sure not to watch the trailer. It gives away a whole lot. I watched it on the Blu-ray disc put out by Kino Lorber. Um, in addition to the trailer, it does have other trailers for a couple of films like Narrow Margin, Another Train Film, and the film John Voight won an Oscar for, Coming Home, as well as a commentary track with Eric Roberts and film historians David DelVal and C. Courtney Joyner. That's Runaway Train from 1985, Highly recommended that you check this film out. It's a nice uh, snowy adventure for the holidays. Before I get to this week's sponsor, I want to talk about the Patreon for a second. Patreon.com backslash force five. There's a lot of stuff going on there. Last week, I did five interesting films by Alan Smithy. Next week, we've got some paying listeners going head-to-head in the Christian Bale Top 5 draft, which should be a lot of fun. Again, if you want in on the extra content, patreon.com backslash force5. Check it out. Speaking of checking out, again, just a couple weeks left until Christmas, so if you haven't started shopping, it's time. And today's sponsor, by and large, is ready to help out. And not just with shopping, but so much more. The By and Large family of companies offers an ever-expanding range of consumer solutions, but it wasn't always the unparalleled provider of convenience it is today. By and Large got its start as a maker of frozen yogurt, and it acquired large industries, which seemed like a natural fit. 
the newly combined corporate entity of By and Large was formed and never stopped expanding its efforts to make your world easier, more comfortable, and pleasant. The apostrophe might have disappeared, but our commitment to the consumer will never fade. With over two million wholly owned subsidiaries, governmental bodies, and healthcare centers, By and Large has become the world leader in every conceivable field, including world leadership. By and Large remains an essential and beloved part of all of our lives, keeping you moving along life's highway, cleaning up the messes so you don't have to. By and Large, everything, all the time. Head into your local Buy and Large and use promo code F5 at the register for an extra 5% off of your order. Play it again, Santa. Let's get to Oriana Nudo from Hollywoodography. Welcome back to the Force 5 Podcast. Today I'm joined by my recent incinerator opponent, Oriana Nudo, co-host of the Hollywoodography Podcast. Oriana, how are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you for asking. Before we get into some of your tastes and ultimately tape up our gloves for the main event, tell all my list nerds out there about Hollywoodography. So Hollywoodography is a podcast that my uh, college friend and I uh, came up with. We'd been wanting to do a podcast for, I don't know, like eight, <laughs> seven years. And then the pandemic hit and we suddenly had time and we had time to think about it and what we wanted to do. And so we're both really big uh, film history buffs. And something I really enjoy doing is trying to see how many movies of – pretty much, I don't know, I have a list of like 50 actors and actresses, um, movies of theirs that I can see. And that's kind of what I'll set my TV to record movies off TCM from based off people. And uh, I was talking to her about this and she was like, oh, that would be a really fun podcast. And so what we do is each season we have a different actor or actress and we've started with actresses and then we swap every other season. And we go through their entire filmography from start to finish and we watch them all in order. And then that's, that's pretty much it. And we, our first season was on Natalie Wood and we wanted to really focus on people who maybe something else in their life made their careers kind of take the back seat a little bit. So for Natalie Wood, it pretty much people, exclusively talk about her. They talk about her death as well. And so we really wanted to focus on her career and contributions to cinema. And then our second season, which we just finished up our last episode, actually aired today. So I'm not sure when this is going to air, but um, <laughs> the day we're recording, our last episode went up, um, minus a few bonus episodes we have coming up. And our second season was on Paul Newman, which was really fun. We actually didn't know a whole lot personally about him besides some you know, started the Newman's Own Foundation and the Hole in the Wall camp and things like that. So it was really fun getting to watch someone who's such an incredible actor just slowly perfect their career over time. And we really liked the idea of, you know, someone like Natalie, who was a child star and then making movies through the 60s and someone a little in the 70s, barely hitting the 80s. But then having someone like Paul Newman, who was 
older when he started, but then was making movies through the 2000s. So we kind of are trying to pick people based off those various things. And then, of course, I think halfway through our Paul Newman season, we found out that his memoir was going to be coming out, which was amazing. Not great timing for us, but like <laughs> kind of amazing that while we were working on this, that was eventually coming out. So uh, that came out, about, I think, a week or two ago. And so read that and that was really fun. So here's another podcast that was birthed out of the pandemic. Mine was as well. It's, that's great. A couple questions about Hollywoodography. So do you have uh, an actress in mind for season three? Uh, I actually think we have our next three or four picked oh, cool. out. Um, we just haven't announced them yet. And we announce that at the end of each season. Awesome. So look for that. And then um, between season one and two, what's been your biggest surprise film so far? Like the, the one that you just absolutely adore? With Natalie, I had actually seen pretty much, I, I'd say like 80% of her films before doing the podcast. So this was nice to just kind of round that out. But um, Love with a Proper Stranger is one that I highly, highly recommend that I feel like not enough people have have seen or maybe know about. And it's with uh, Natalie and Steve McQueen. And it's just this really, really, really wonderful movie. Um, but I also love Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. And every time I see that, I like it more and more. So <laughs> <laughs> that's one that's really fun. And Paul, oh, there were, there were so many, um, you know, I'm trying to think of one that I hadn't seen because I'd seen quite a few of his, um, uh, one that I actually revisited and liked so much more this time around was HUD. I hadn't seen that since college, so about 10 years ago. And I remember thinking it was fine, but like I maybe wasn't old enough to fully get it. And then watching it this time around, I was like, oh no, this is a perfect movie and like the, you know, perfect to him. And uh, I feel like an older Paul that I also revisited and liked much more this time was uh, The Color of Money, which similarly I had not seen since I took a Scorsese class in college as well. So I feel like with him, it's a, it's really with Natalie, what was fun was seeing her at all these different stages of her life and all of these just like immense hits that she made over the years and how she was reinventing herself. And then with Paul, it's like this really steady incline his entire career. Like, yes, of course there are, you know, some bumps, but generally speaking and his acting just keeps getting better and better and better and he gets more comfortable. And once he you know, hits the verdict and he feels that he's aged and he doesn't feel like people can say his looks have everything to do with his performances. He becomes so much more comfortable and just his acting just like really flips on a dime after the verdict. But I similarly remember seeing The Color of Money in college and thinking like, yeah, this is okay. I'm so sad. This is what he won his Oscar for though. And then rewatching <laughs> it, I was like, oh, that was wrong. He's amazing. <laughs> All right, so go listen to Hollywoodography. You can find that wherever you're listening to this, and I'm going to have links in the show notes for it. On to our topic today. So boxing movies. When we were on The Incinerator, you mentioned that your proposed topic was boxing films. Is this one of your favorite subgenres? So I 
full disclosure, do not really enjoy um, sports very much. I feel like grow- growing up, my family wasn't too into them, but my extended family, I feel like that's how I spent Thanksgiving was watching football games and just doing all these things where we were never interacting. And I always felt like they were kind of getting in the way. And so sports movies for me can be a little rough. Um And for whatever reason, though, I really, really love boxing movies. (laughs) (laughs) I find them so fascinating. And maybe it's because there are are just so many different angles that you can hit and how corrupt boxing was back when this was all going on. It's like, you know, unkept secret. And there are just so many. It infiltrates so many different genres and so many actors. wanted to be in boxing films and you're just like such a wide array of great performers. You have like some musicals, very few musicals, but some comedies like melodramas, biopics, you have so many different areas that it infiltrates and you have styles like going into film noir. And I find that so fascinating and almost unlike many other sports films I've seen. So watches, I'm sure you can come back to me and say that all sports movies do this. So that might be my my blind <laughs> spot, but I, that's what's always intrigued me about boxing movies. No, that's cool. This is a really interesting topic. And I honestly, I haven't seen that many boxing films and I was going through different lists and I was trying to find different things to watch. And I'm wondering how different our lists are going to be because it seems like you're more of a, like, you're way more versed in classic cinema than I am. Uh, and there are a wealth of boxing films in that classic cinema realm. So I'm wondering how our lists are going to stack up against each other here. Did you have any process like trimming your list down to five or was it like, I know these are my five and I didn't have to rearrange at all? Uh, I think I had seven or eight that I was trying to fathom like how I could cut any. And so then I kind of decided, okay, I think I'm going to go a little off genre and then off maybe decades and then kind of see where you're at also. Um, which it's, it's funny because I, I've seen a lot of contemporary boxing films. Um, and I definitely tend to lean more towards the older ones. Um, so I was kind of also banking a little on maybe that you'd be pulling out some of the more recent ones. So I nice. could talk about <laughs> some of the older ones. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, I've got uh, I've got quite a mix of of decades on here, but uh, we'll see how it all shakes out. Oriana from Hollywoodography, are you ready to get into our list today? Yes, I am. Top five boxing movies. I'm going to kick us off here, and I am going to go with the newest film on my list. This is Southpaw from 2015. You ready? Don't get hit too much. You ain't never been hit by a real man. Let's go home. It'll be a year before your suspension's up. I'm looking for a place to train. Like, it's not about this. It's about this. We start tomorrow. Training? No, baking cookies. The three of us, that's all that matters. Is it for my family? Yes! This is your time. This is your moment. Southpaw, rated R, July twenty fourth. I um, I actually worked in management for a very short amount of time, but um, one of our clients was Rachel McAdams, and this was the film that was coming out when I first started working at that company. So that was really fun. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So this one is directed by Antoine Fuqua. And it's about Billy Hope. He's called uh, The Great Hope. 
He's a reigning junior middleweight boxing champion. He has an impressive career. He's got Rachel McAdams as his loving wife. He's got a great daughter. He lives this lavish lifestyle. But then tragedy strikes and he hits rock bottom. He loses his family. He loses his house. He loses his manager. It's the typical tropey story of the boxer who loses it all and then finds this unlikely savior in a guy named Tick Willis, played by Forrest Whitaker, who's a former fighter, and then he trains him to, you know, come come back to the glory that he once was. This is a movie that's filled with genre cliches, but there's one main reason why I love this movie so much, and that is Jake Gyllenhaal, who I will watch and adore in anything, but in this movie in particular, he looks so powerful. Like, when you see him on screen, his body almost looks like it's CGI, the work that he did to get in shape for this film. He's absolutely ripped, and he's just filled with anger. The, the boxing scenes in this are done really well. I, I like it when boxing movies make us feel those punches, and it delivers here. It's shot really well. It feels like you can, like you're being bruised along with him every punch he takes. In a movie like this, it's also tough sometimes when you have child actors, but the child actor in this, uh, Una Lawrence, she's really, really good. She's Billy Hope's daughter, and there's a lot of emotional scenes between them because um, at some point he's trying to win her back. Even though this movie is full of cliches and it is predictable, I think it's a really well-made ride. It's also got a, a great soundtrack, so if you're a hip-hop fan, there's a lot of good songs in here. That's uh, Southpaw from 2015, directed by Antoine Fuqua at Maya number 5. I am so happy that you picked Southpaw. I really, of the more recent ones, I really enjoyed this. And I also really like Jake Gyllenhaal, but also adore Rachel McAdams. And we'll see anything that she's in. <laughs> yes. So I remember thinking that she had a supporting role in this. I was like, oh, it's so interesting. But I think what I really liked about this the most is how the type of uh, boxer he is and his boxing style and how dangerous that is to his health and just, you know, a theme that's in so many boxing films and just really shows you how dangerous the sport is. And so I really like that the entire movie is revolving around having him be more calculated and less violent and how this will like affect him and his family. And so I think that's a really interesting thing to focus on. It felt very like original in that way. I agree. And you had brought up Rachel McAdams at the beginning, and I totally forgot to mention that she's also one of my favorite actors. And so having these two in the same movie together was like a dream come true for me. Yeah, they they have really great chemistry. And she is she's a real standout in this. She's definitely the second she's not in it anymore. And she's not in very much of it. You really feel her through the rest of the movie and you understand why he's going through what he's going through. So they both really pull not to not to pull a pun but like pull the punches in that way <laughs> agreed i saw this in gosh i saw this blind i went in um not knowing anything about it we were in mexico and there was a really great movie theater in mexico and so i wanted to see something there and i hadn't seen trailers for anything that was out at the time so we just like picked one it was like between a boxing movie and and something else so we picked the boxing movie and i was so surprised and I, I really, really like this movie. It's just got a a really, um, gosh, a, a really like pressure cooker feel to it all, which I which I enjoyed. Yeah, I agree. Okay, uh, Oriana, number five for you. Okay, so my number five pick is going to be the 1956 Robert Wise film, Somebody Up There Likes Me. 
He was a streetwise kid fighting on the wrong side of the law. I tried to turn the leaf, but I can't make it. Until the day he used his fists in the boxing ring. I like the way you hit, kid, and uh, I, I'd like to handle you. In the role that made him a star, Paul Newman portrays Rocky Graziano. Maybe I was in trouble once, but never again. In the true story of a fighter struggling against his past, who became the middleweight champion of the world. You know, I've been lucky. Somebody up there likes me. Now on video cassette. Which is about Rocky Graziano, played by Paul Newman. And it really starts with him as a child and kind of the rough neighborhood he's growing up in New York and the beatings he takes by his father and he's involved with a street gang and gets sent to prison eventually. And then he's released and then because he's drafted by the army, but he runs away because he really doesn't want to be involved in the war at all. And that's when he takes up boxing and starts winning all of these fights. And then eventually the um, army catches up with him. He becomes dishonorably discharged. And then it's kind of, will he be able to fight again? And it really is kind of a straightforward biopic. But what I will say is Paul Newman and Pierre Angeli, who plays the girl who becomes his wife, are so magnetic in this film. And I remember seeing this for the first time a couple years ago at the New Beverly Cinema in Los Angeles. They were doing a Oh my, why did I forget his name? Um, they were doing a Salminio uh, series that month and this was one of the films they played. And I remember seeing this and just being completely blown away by the film in general, but also by Paul Newman. And I couldn't figure out why people didn't talk about this movie more or this performance. He really, really feels like a boxer. And he actually went and spoke to the real Rocky Graziano and got a lot of his mannerisms down and not so much his, I mean, his fighting techniques, obviously, but I think things he really paid close attention to were how he talked in, besides how he talked in real life, but how he moved around, how he really just had frenetic energy and couldn't stand still. And you really feel like this is a totally lived in performance. And considering he was just coming off of the silver chalice, which is one of the worst movies of his career and his first movie and could have killed his career. Had he not been in something like somebody up there likes me. And Pierre Angeli is just so wonderful. She seems like this really sweet girl and then just ends up being very, very strong and it kind of pulls him through everything and is really the driving force in his life. And I just love watching their romance blossom in this movie. She gets really nervous about him fighting because it's so dangerous. And it just feels like you're watching this real it, a real couple. And it's just this very sweet, well-done biopic that I think had it not been done by someone as talented as Robert Wise, who had already made a boxing movie uh, five years earlier, I, I don't know if it would have been as good. He's just such a master. He has so many great films that span so many genres and so many decades. And he started as an editor. So he just really knows cinema very, very well. And this is just such a charming, quirky, surprising film that really is a straightforward biopic, but it, it feels so different while you're watching it. And 
for those Rocky fans, this is really where a lot of it comes from. <laughs> like, I don't think the movie Rocky would exist without this by any means. Wow. Okay. I have to search this out because, um, well, we'll talk about some of the reasons why here in a little bit, but I, I really do need to seek this out. I haven't even heard of this movie before. It's a really, really fun one. And the way the boxing scenes are filmed are just incredible. And again, because Robert Wise started in editing and then didn't edit his films once he became a director. But I think from what I've read with him, he because he came from the editing world, he was really great at coverage and making sure his editors got what they needed. And so his films just... They're, they're always visually stimulating and exciting. And I think that type of directing works really well for a boxing film where you have someone who really can't stand still and they're just constantly moving. And Paul Newman's performance, again, he, he said he, I think this is wild. He said he did not think he learned how to act until he did the verdict in 1982. And there are so many performances that say the opposite of that. But this one is really, really high up there. It doesn't sound like him, but it doesn't feel like he's a caricature. It really is just, he doesn't do anything else like this in the rest of his career. And it just feels so very method and fresh in the 50s. And it, it really still stands up well today. Well, I'm glad that you brought up Robert Wise. Normally on this show, we are very bad with segues, but you gave me a great intro to my number four, which is that previous boxing film that he made in 1949. My number four is The Setup. And what will he be doing in the meantime? Oh, you don't understand. I understand that he's 23 and you're 35, Bill. 35 in this business, you're an old man. Look, Joey. They're building this kid up, feeding him a lot of pushovers. If I can get over him tonight, that'll mean a rematch. That's a semi-wind-up, 150 guarantee. Maybe a top spot, even. Top spot? Yeah, a top spot. And I'm just one punch away. I remember the first time you told me that. You were just one punch away from the title shot then. Don't you see, Bill? You'll always be just one punch away. This is directed by Robert Wise. He, for those of you who aren't familiar with Robert Wise, he also did like Sound of Music, West Side Story, Sand Pebbles. He's a really prolific director. And it stars Robert Ryan, who is also a really prolific actor. He's, um, most people probably know him from like Dirty Dozen, The Wild Bunch, The Professionals. He plays this boxer named Stoker Thompson. And Stoker is aging in the boxing world. He's He's 35, which is not old, but in the boxing world, as they say in this movie, he's an old man. And he's kind of a has-been. He's been losing most of his fights, uh, really actually losing all of his fights, his recent fights. And he's on this card to fight a much younger, much hotter boxer named Tiger Nelson. And unbeknownst to him, his manager has arranged with a local gangster to have his fighter take a dive. So he's going to have Stoker lose this fight, but he doesn't even tell Stoker to lose the fight because he's so sure that Stoker's going to lose. And uh, Audrey Totter's also here. She's second build. She's playing Stoker's wife, who is concerned for him because she she knows like one punch could send this guy to his doom. But on the other side, uh, Stoker is like one good punch will put me back on top. And so he's not ready to, to hang him up yet. And she really wants him to. She's so concerned that she doesn't even go in to see the fight. She stays outside. A couple cool things about this movie. Number one, it takes place in real time. So the movie's pretty short. It's like 70 minutes, I think. 
and it plays out in real time. And you could see clocks throughout the movie that show you it's it's in real time. It's also, as you mentioned, uh, Robert Wise is an amazing director. It's got really great camera work. There's a scene in the beginning of this movie that feels like um, it feels like P.T. Anderson in the beginning of Boogie Nights, where the the camera just kind of moves through the club and shows you all these different people. It's the same kind of feel here where it's moving through the box office and it's showing you all these different people who are going in to see the fight. Really well done. And the boxing scenes are also really well done. It does not look fun to be a boxer in this movie. And Stoker's like, you can see physical damage in his performance as he goes on. But unlike a lot of boxing movies, the drama doesn't necessarily come from us as the audience wondering if Stoker is going to win, but rather what would happen if he won because that bet is on the line. And he finds out at some point during that fight, like something's not right. And, you know, you, you kind of wonder, like, what's he going to do about it? So that's why I love this setup from 1949. You had a, a later Robert Wise film on your list. Uh, tell us about your experience with the setup. I am so incredibly happy you put this on here because I was choosing between this and somebody up there likes me. <laughs> and I had honestly just seen somebody up there likes me more recently. So I was like, okay, I think I can speak a little better to that one. Nice. But this setup is incredible. Whenever I, uh, I believe I saw this in college for the first time. And whenever I had friends who were interested in maybe like film noirs they hadn't seen or boxing films. This is one I always recommend because I think number one, short movies are always great. And yes. especially when they're so well compacted and you don't feel like you've watched a short film by the time this is done, it goes by quickly, but it is you, I don't know. You feel so well satiated when it's over, but it's just such an incredible performance by Robert Ryan and Audrey Totter. And I love so far that Considering so many boxing movies are about, you know, male boxers, these three movies all have really strong female leads or, you know, supporting actresses in the case of Southpaw, but they have such, such great and well-written women in them. And it's, this is going to sound very strange, but boxing movies in that way almost remind me of romantic comedies from the thirties and forties where the men are only as good as the women and the entire thing's only great if they're both like intelligent and they're both witty. And that's something that I find in boxing films as well. And the setup is one where I really do love Audrey Totter's character and what she's going through and how she's so, she's really worried about him. And like you said, she, he's not a great boxer, but you, you love watching him where he really wants, he doesn't want, he's not doing this on purpose. He's not bad on purpose. He tries really, really hard and I, which makes it even more harrowing watching him the whole time. You're really rooting for him. But at the same time, you're like, oh, but I see what your wife is saying. Like this act, <laughs> like this is so bad. Please, you know, like make it, I don't know, make it all stop. But in a way that's somehow good for both of you. And I, this is my favorite boxing film. That's also a film noir and noir just suits itself so well to boxing with how crooked the commission is. And like you said, his manager as bet all this money against him, doesn't even tell him because he just <laughs> assumes it. like, how depressing is that? And oh, yeah. in, it, it's pretty cynical, even for boxing films, most managers, they're the ones like really helping. And that's, 
you know, their aid. It's, it's, it's such a different relationship, but the way wise plays with, you know, the black and white photography and like these canted angles. And it really is just, I feel like the, the perfect example of a boxing noir film and one of the best noir films ever made as well. 100% agree. There's a great moment with uh, him and his wife after the fight that's just, um, yeah, I don't want to spoil it here, but just so good (laughs) at the end of this movie. It's a very well-deserved ending. Yeah, totally. All right. uh, Number four for you. Okay. So (laughs) I feel like my number four is going to feel a little out of left field, um, but kind of tying into what we were just talking about with um, managers who were really helpful. My number four is a film called Here Comes Mr. Jordan from 1941. Right into the thick of a murder. Is it going on right now? Yes. Right here in this house? Who's doing it? His wife and the man she's in love with. They're drowning him in the bathtub. Holy cow. No, Joe Pendleton, Robert Montgomery to you, wants no part of that setup. That is, he thinks he doesn't, until he sees a girl named Betty. I didn't come here so much to thank you as to... because I had to see you again. But that's wonderful. That's wonderful. And here comes Max Corkle, Joe's lifetime friend and ex-manager, who thinks Joe cracked up in his plane. Joe is having a hard time convincing him he's wrong. Listen. Oh, what's the matter with your eyes, you big sap? I'm not Farnsworth. I'm Joe Pendleton. That is directed by Alexander Hall. And this is a film about a boxer and an amateur pilot named Joe Pendleton. And he is um, out uh, flying his aircraft and then he crashes and basically his soul is taken away and you find out that kind of the way things operate, it's when it's someone's time, they get pulled kind of as they're dying and go up into this like heaven limbo and they get taken on. But Joe Pendleton is just convinced this wasn't his time. And as it turns out, it was not. His body was taken prematurely And so they go to put him back, but they can't because his manager had had his body cremated because he was in this accident. So the rest of the movie is spent with Joe essentially trying to find like a a new body to go into. And because he his life was taken too quickly, so he gets to go back. But he's very picky about what body he wants to go into because he wants someone healthy and strong because he wants to continue boxing. And he ends up eventually taking the body of this man, Farnsworth, who's a corrupt and seedy, very wealthy uh, banker, I believe. And (laughs) he gets put back into the body, not really knowing everything that's happened to him before. But his this man, Farnsworth, his wife and secretary who are having an affair were trying to kill him. So he comes back into this body and is this is this banker but ends up basically writing all the wrongs this very crooked man did which makes of course his wife and secretary angry and then finds his old manager convinces him that he's actually Joe Pendleton in this body and then starts training. 
uh, to become a boxer. And I don't want to spoil what happens at the end of the movie, but if this sounds familiar, it's because the Warren Beatty film, Heaven Can Wait, is a remake of this. It's just instead of boxing, he's a football player. And it is this truly wonderful fantasy comedy and it stars Robert Montgomery who's this wonderful wonderful actor who did a lot of dramas a lot of comedies a lot of film noirs he eventually became a director um I believe in like the the late 50s he retired and then became a film and television director and his uh daughter is Elizabeth Montgomery of Bewitched uh, so if you see any similarities between them, but Evelyn Keyes plays the love interest in his movie. In this film, uh, Claude Rains is Mr. Jordan, who's the one kind of orchestrating everything and help, helping him through it. And Everett Everett, Edward Everett Horton, who's a really, really great character actor, is the one who accidentally takes him too soon. So adds that comedy twist. And then James Gleason is his manager. And uh, he, again, another just wonderful, wonderful character actor. And one of the things I love about this film is it feels so like, it's something I really love about old movies is how actors sound and the mannerisms that they really work on. And Robert Montgomery, I think this is one of the first films I'd seen of his. And then I saw him in other things. I'm like, oh, he doesn't sound like this really heavy New Yorker. He's very <laughs> different sounding in real life and everything else. But he just has this wonderful voice. And so does Edward Everett Horton. And then James Mason, I'm sorry, James Mason's in the remake. Uh, Claude Rains also, you just have these really distinguished, familiar character actors and they're all so wonderful in this and their parts are all on the smaller side, but very, very juicy. But I think what I love so much about this is it comes, it came out in 1941 and the entire movie, when you think about its placement in film and in the middle of this, it came out, I believe, August 1941. So before Pearl Harbor, but there were so many films that weren't about the war coming out around this time, like 19, between like 1938 and 1941, about uh, young, very healthy, fit men where something happens to them and they're taken too soon. But then we get to go on this like adventure and experience and kind of get a glimpse into maybe what the afterlife could be. And in this case, it's like he wasn't supposed to be gone too soon. He gets to come back and you, when he becomes Farmsworth, you, uh, he can see himself, um, in the mirror. He doesn't see what Farmsworth sees, but everyone else sees that, but it's like his soul is still ultimately Joe Pendleton. And so I just imagine what audiences would have been going through watching something like this and how they would have experienced something on a totally different level. And so I know that doesn't necessarily have something to do with boxing, but it really is just such a sweet and wonderful and heartfelt film. And I I think it's just so interesting that they chose him to be a boxer when it could have probably been anything else. But I think taking a sport where there is so much seedy activity and having him be this really stand-up guy who just wants to train and fight and win is very interesting juxtaposed against the backdrop of everything else that's going on in the film. 
I've never heard of this film either. I feel like you're going to have some, uh, you're going to leave me with this list of boxing movies I need to see, which is awesome. I think I've seen Heaven Can Wait, but it's been a very long time since I've seen that movie. So I will go into this and it will feel fresh. Heaven Can Wait is a really nice send off to this. It's very sweet. James Mason plays the Mr. Jordan role. Um, as opposed to Claude Rains and Diane Cannon is the wife in the film and Julie Christie plays the love interest. And I want, oh gosh, I want to say Charles Grodin is like the secretary, but now I'm questioning if that's him. But regardless, it's, it's also a wonderful cast and a very wonderful film and really gets to, I believe this was based off of a play. And so they're both at the heart of it. And I think it's interesting that they choose a different profession rather than boxing and the sport uh football's way less focused on in heaven can wait than boxing is in here comes mr jordan but i think maybe just because boxing was really popular in the 30s 40s and 50s so maybe you know that's why they chose it for this well we're gonna go from yours which i haven't seen to my number three which i think most people have seen and I just saw this recently, so I'm going to be pretty short with, with what I say here. If you want my full review, it's just a couple episodes back. But uh, 1976's Rocky. This is, I think, one of the great Cinderella stories of all time. Uh, and also, I, I encourage people to see it, even if they maybe been turned off by all the other sequels that came, because this is so different. The thing about Stallone is that this is a, an interesting project for anybody who writes the film. And, and stars in the film. This is a real expression of what he, uh, what kind of a movie he wanted to make. And he was nominated for, for, for Best Screenplay in the film. And for Best Actor. And for Best Actor, yeah. yeah. And, uh, Another Cinderella story in itself. Stallone holding on to this idea and not, not being willing to sell his script unless he could star in it. Well, the other thing about it is there is Stallone the actor and there's Stallone the icon. Yeah. And Stallone, I thought, was a very good actor. One of the best performances Stallone ever gave as a pure actor is in the movie Rocky. He's really mm-hmm. wonderful. He's very truthful. Oriana, if you, if you hadn't listened to that episode, uh, I had not seen Rocky up until like three weeks ago. when That's amazing. Our, <laughs> yeah, so, so part of our... Part of my Patreon uh, perks is that every month I tap somebody on the shoulder randomly and they get to assign me a movie, whatever movie they want. And my best friend uh, is a Patreon listener and he knows that for the longest time uh, he had always tried to get me to watch Rocky and I would never watch Rocky because in my mind I was like, I know what happens. I don't need to watch this movie. And so he found this loophole where I could not say no. So he assigned me Rocky and through the first half of this movie, I was like not sold on it. And I still can't explain the moment where all of a sudden I was in. Like, I don't know what it is about this movie, but it feels like that ultimate underdog sports story. It's about this guy who is, it's, he's an amateur boxer. He works as like a leg breaker for the low level Philadelphia mob. And this prize fighter, Apollo Creed, comes into town, heavyweight champion. He has an opponent lined up for the bicentennial and that opponent breaks his, I think he breaks his hand. So he has to bow out instead of just canceling the fight. Apollo Creed's been training for a long time. He decides to essentially pick a no name out of a catalog and call it the, like the the American dream. You have this guy getting his shot at the heavyweight title and he picks Rocky and Rocky's reluctant at first, but finally he agrees. He trains and it's it's amazing at some point 
I, I can't understand why, but I, I just, I, maybe because it feels so authentic. And in my research, obviously I learned like, I knew Stallone had written it, but I didn't realize that they wanted to have somebody else in that role. And he just would not give up the position. And so he stars in it, they cut the budget in half, but it's a really well-made movie. And every character is really well realized even if i don't love like the love story between he and adrian it still feels really authentic and and really real apollo creed played by uh, carl weathers is just an amazing character because he's not necessarily a villain he's just underestimating his opponent and i think we've all had these moments where we underestimate an opponent in something and then we really get taken to the limit I think that that kind of like feeling invoked in this movie really made me feel something. Um, and then it's also your classic guy taking his one in a million shot and giving it his best. I love Rocky. I have not yet seen any of the sequels and I haven't seen Creed. So I am ready to, to dive into those as well. But yeah, uh, love Rocky. What are your thoughts about Rocky? Yeah, I saw Rocky for the first time maybe five, six years ago at the Egyptian. They did a double feature of Rocky and Raging Bull, Mm. which is like real fun whiplash. And (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I enjoyed Rocky. I've only seen it the one time. Um, I'm, I'm happy it's on here because I feel like it should be. It's definitely it's definitely not my favorite. I actually think I enjoyed watching his relationship with Adrian more than I think the rest oh, of the really? movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I um I really do I love Talia Shire in it. I think she's so wonderful. She's so bizarre and you know you know what's funny though. Um I'm glad that both this and somebody up there likes me are on here because now that you've seen Rocky, you have to watch somebody up there likes me because you're going to go, oh, I see. <laughs> and it's like, it's not like beat for beat, but you know, Rocky, Rocky Graziano, uh, the character Adrian, it's not her name and somebody up there likes me, but there is a, a little bit of a similarity only it's, you know, I love that she is this kind of very quiet, shy girl who becomes more forceful and finds her voice. And I think that's fun. And I do love the underdog element to it. And I think you you put it so well that a lot of times, I feel like this happens in sports all the time. People just think like, oh, we did so well. There's no way the other person or the other team can catch up. And then they do oftentimes. And so I think that's part of the reason why people you know, love this so much. Yeah, it's interesting that we both liked different aspects of this movie. When when you said, um, oh, what's the title of your first film? Somebody Up There Likes Me. Somebody Up There Likes Me, yeah. Uh, when you said it felt like a precursor to Rocky, I was already excited to, to check that out. It's Yeah, it's great. Adrian is playing, Talia Shire rather, is playing this character, uh, Adrian, as almost like it felt like Ali Sheedy from The Breakfast Club to me yes and she went through there <laughs> but uh you just realize later on that she's just very very shy i'm looking forward to how she like blossoms as this character in the sequels yeah i've only seen creed and creed 2 i've not seen any of the other rocky films oh okay cool well i'll report back once i watch it <laughs> i'm excited to hear <laughs> all right so rocky is my number three what do you got at number three midpoint here 
Okay, so my number three film, I feel like I'm picking a lot of relatively obscure ones, but I feel like this just makes it, it's fun. It's giving very diverse, we have a very diverse list so far. I'm loving it. Yeah, so yeah. my number three is called The Harder They Fall. And it's also from 1956. It's directed by Mark Robson. And this is actually Humphrey Bogart's final film performance. And this movie is really fascinating because. Humphrey Bogart plays this character, Eddie Willis, who's a sports writer who is pretty broke, and he gets hired to be the PR man by a boxing promoter, Nick Benko, who is played by Rod Steiger. And he's hired uh, this man named uh, Toro Moreno, who is this very, very tall Argentinian man, and he... Had pretty much wants to use his size as like a gimmick to get fans to come to his uh, boxing matches. And eventually, uh, Eddie finds out that all of his fights are actually fixed. And so with the goal of hiring Eddie is to promote this guy, make him seem like this incredible boxer. And then Nick is fixing all the fights so he wins, but this guy's actually not very good at boxing. And his manager, Luis, who comes with him from Argentina, has no idea that this is happening, like any of this. And so Eddie, Humphrey Bogart, keeps playing along with everything. And eventually they go like cross country. He becomes this huge, huge boxer, but then he eventually gets involved in a fight and Eddie gets really nervous because he, the boxer he's up against is someone who accidentally like killed a guy in a different fight. And so he's very vicious and he's really worried about Toro going up against him. And so again, I don't want to, I feel like with boxing movies, you don't want to spoil like what happens at the end, but it's such a moral dilemma. Is Humphrey Bogart going to tell this guy what he's up against? And he at the simultaneously like is very upset with what's happening, but he has no money and he's going to get like $26,000 by the end of this. And so it's really like, is he going to, do the right thing or is he going to essentially send this guy maybe to get killed in the ring? And what I love so much about this is I feel like out of almost all boxing movies I've seen, this is, it feels the most corrupt and it really is very cynical, but it's so well-written. It's so well-directed. You have Humphrey Bogart who just has the most expressive face, like those eyes they can they can be very jovial, but most of the time they're just so weathered and so torn. And so watching him go through this conflict, even when he's not saying anything, you're just watching him go through this. And it's a real testament to how wonderful of an actor Humphrey Bogart was, like his entire career, and especially towards the end. And you have this is one of Rod Steiger's earliest films, and it's interesting because he's very method and Humphrey Bogart wasn't. And Rod Steiger was really worried, like, oh, no, how's this going to work on set? And he said Humphrey Bogart could not have been lovelier. And they always did. Uh, they were doing Humphrey Bogart's takes first during filming because uh, he had already gotten cancer. He hadn't told people, but people could tell something was wrong and he was sick. And so 
and his eyes would start really watering up very quickly. So they had to get all of his scenes done first. And Rod Steiger was like, oh, like that, that this all makes sense. Clearly something's going on. And he was kind of bummed because he was like, oh, I was really looking forward to really doing everything with him. And then the second bogey finished, he stayed for all of Rod Steiger's scenes and ended up actually having to redo some of his own later because he stayed for so long. And they have a, they have a very contentious relationship in the film, but their acting styles blend so well together. And I love that this movie exists because it's a boxing movie that's not focused on the boxer. It's like everyone around him, the PR machine, the the managers or like the people, not the, you know, like the people who they're, uh, it's like their talent they have out there. And you know, having this guy be winning all these fights, but he's not really good at boxing. And at one point the commissioners come in to investigate because they're like, we don't, we think this is all fixed and you know, it is, but they don't know that. And so it's really fascinating watching someone who's not great at boxing go through this machine. And it's like really, I feel like churning out and showing how corrupt boxing was at the time. And I don't know if this would have felt revelatory in 1956, but certainly watching it now, you're like, this is insane. Like, I wonder how angry the boxing people were and like all the crooked people running everything were, but it's, it's really a special film. And I love that it is still about boxing, just kind of focuses on a really different aspect than almost any other movie I can think of. I'm definitely sold on this one. I have not seen it, but I do I, I think I remember the poster. It's just like a glove in a ring, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. But it, it sounds interesting in that the, again, the drama is not, is this person going to win? The drama sounds like it's, if I don't tell somebody about this, then this boxer is probably going to die in that ring. And that's, I mean, that's as high as the stakes get in most boxing movies. Yeah, exactly. It's It's exactly that. Not even about, yeah, how is he going to do it? It's can he even make it? Oh my gosh! All right, that's three that I haven't seen. Um, I don't think I don't think we've ever done a list where somebody has had five films that I haven't seen. But right now you're on that course, so we'll see. If it Amazing. <laughs> uh, my number two here. I'm going to start my number two with a quote from Roger Ebert, when he said, "Clint Eastwood's Million Dollar Baby is a masterpiece, pure and simple, deep and true." It tells the story of an aging fight trainer and a hillbilly girl who thinks she can be a boxer. It's narrated by a former boxer who's the trainer's best friend, but it is not a boxing movie. It's a movie about a boxer. What else it is, all it is, how deep it goes, what emotional power it contains, I cannot suggest in this review because I will not spoil the experience of following the story into the deepest secrets of life and death. This is the best film of the year. Roger Ebert's favorite film in 2004 was Million Dollar Baby. I'm going to teach you how to fight. And don't come crying to me if you get hurt. I teach you all you need to know, and then you go off and you make a million dollars. It's all I ask. All righty. We got a deal. This is a film that has a great trailer because, and I'm also going to stick with Ebert here. I'm not going to tell you what happens in the second half, but if you watch the trailer for Million Dollar Baby, you'd get a good idea of what the first half of the film is. 
but at the end of this uh at the end of the second act there's something that happens that i don't think anybody saw coming when i saw this in the theater this is directed by and starring clint eastwood and hillary swank and it feels like the first half is almost like a female rocky where you have this waitress who's from the ozarks she comes in to a scrappy gym in la and she's like i want to be a professional fighter and frankie dunn clint eastwood's character is like i'm I'm not going to train you i don't train women and the janitor at the gym played by morgan freeman he starts training her kind of like under the table and eventually frankie sees this and through uh, his own like losses he decides that he's going to uh, finally train her and he takes her from a prospect to a top fighter and there's also a contentious relationship with him and his own daughter that is like a, a perfect backdrop to this girl who he's now playing a kind of a father figure to it has an emotional gut punch that just threw me for a loop. Um, it's also got a great supporting cast. So I rewatched this for this episode and I, I didn't remember anybody except Clint Eastwood and Hilary Swank, who's amazing in this and Morgan Freeman, but it's also got Anthony Mackie, Michael Pena, Jay Baruchel and Margot Martindale, who is just fantastic in everything she's in. This was nominated for seven Academy Awards. It won best picture, best director, best actress and best supporting actor and in my opinion all were deserved Um, it's just a really really emotional movie and it's got several scenes that stick with me Um, and I I can't even talk about some of them because I don't want to spoil this if you haven't seen Million Dollar Baby uh, I say highly highly recommended here at my number two Um, have you seen this one before I have I have not seen it since it came out in theaters though because mm. also not to spoil anything, but I remember just being very upset uh, <laughs> by the experience and not feeling like I was hoodwinked, but just, it, it, you're right, it's just very emotional and not what you're expecting, not where you're expecting it to go. And it's very, um, it, this really adds such great variety to this list. I love that we have a movie about a female boxer in here and I'm really glad you picked this. It's funny to you know today I was thinking like oh I wonder if I should have rewatched that. I have not seen it in so long and I just didn't really want to, you know, put myself <laughs> Yeah, it's <laughs> ruined. I feel like I needed more preparation. Um <laughs> but I um I do remember enjoying this and it's funny I similarly didn't realize that was a supporting cast whatsoever. Margot Martindale is just so wonderful. She's like the MVP of everything. She's so Mm -hmm. incredible all the time and so believable, so wonderful. Um, But I remember Hilary Swank was really great in this. You know, I remember reading that Paul Newman was supposed to play the Clint Eastwood role. Oh, wow. Originally. And then Clint was like, oh, wait, just kidding. I think I'm going (laughs) to, I think I'm going to play it, which I mean, you understand why it's a great, it's a great role. Yeah. And a great part as well. He's great in it. And he actually wasn't originally supposed to direct either. It was uh, Paul Haggis' script and Haggis was going to direct it and he was wrapped up with the crash stuff. So it eventually went to Clint Eastwood. I feel like it went where it should have gone. So that's oh. great. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 100% agree. <laughs> uh, really good. And Margot Martindale plays Hilary Swank's mom in the movie. And uh, when she comes to visit her at one point, there is just an unforgettable scene. All right. Well, I definitely need to. I definitely need to rewatch this one. I think it's. I think it's about time. <laughs> yeah, it holds up. Just keep the tissues ready. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, 
My number two is a movie called Golden Boy from 1939. I need you, Lana. I need you all the time. I wish I could give you everything you want. You could go far in the fight game. A prize fight is an insult to a man's soul. And besides, it might mean the end of my music. I need these for the violin. You better be on your toes when you step in that ring. Your loyalty makes me shiver. You forgot your promise and took the easy way out. And look at you now. A bad imitation of your gangster friends. You shouldn't be in the ring, Joe. You belong in your home with your violin. Ladies and gentlemen, main bout of the evening. Instructed by Ruben Mamoulian, and it stars William Holden, Lee J. Cobb, Adolph Manju, and Barbara Stanwyck. And this is a movie about Joe Bonaparte, played by William Holden, who is a very young and promising violinist who... It's 1939, so we're still in the Depression. The wars, you know, started and almost in America. And he needs more money for him and his family. So he decides that he's going to become a boxer, which really upsets his father, who is played by Lee J. Cobb, because his son is just so talented at music that he actually spends like most of his income to buy him this really expensive violin for Joe's 21st birthday. But his uh, Joe's manager, who is played by Adolf Manju, basically convinces him to stick with and stay in boxing. And as Joe starts to question whether this is the path he should go down or whether he should stick with the violin and do what his father wants. And his father is uh, was an immigrant who came over, so really, really wants Joe to succeed and doesn't want him to get involved with how messy boxing is. He, know it's, he knows it's corrupt, and he just really wants this different, better life for him. And so when Joe starts to question what he's doing, his manager sends his girlfriend to entice him to stay. And Barbara Stanwyck uh, is in the entire movie, but that's really when her character comes in. But then eventually she really ends up falling in love with him and wants him to do music instead and wants him to really, you know, she falls in love with his family and all they stand for and so really wants him to quit boxing. But she's technically still with her boyfriend, who's his manager, and things kind of explode and Joe decides, you know what, he is going to try boxing. And then I'm not going to spoil the end of the film, whether he stays in it or whether he goes back and ends up choosing his music. But that's really what the journey is about. And it's I saw this a couple years ago and it just really stuck with me. It's kind of hard to find. I think I might have seen it off of TCM. But William Holden is so so wonderful. Honestly, in everything, I think he's one of the best actors ever. So it's really a treat getting to see him this young in a part like this. And he's so great at, you know, the dichotomy between like, does he do the music? And I love just that that's what 
we're up against him, you know, him boxing, he keeps doing this. And if he hurts himself, he won't be able to play, to play the violin. And so I love that that's really the conflict is all about his hands and like literally what boxing comes down to. And I, I don't think besides Rocky, I feel like all of our movies are pretty much like, look at the, and here comes Mr. Jordan. (laughs) Everything's really about the corruption, either of the boxers themselves um, or everything around them. And so this is another one where you have a manager who's really supposed to be helping you and guiding you. And that's absolutely not what he's doing, especially when he finds out that his girlfriend is in love with his boxer. But Barbara Stanwyck is just so spellbinding in this. She's always so wonderful and feisty and full of life. And it's funny, she almost like moves more like a boxer and has that like frenetic energy. Um, almost a little more so than like most of the boxers I feel like in these in these films and she really is just spitfire and so full of life and I think out of all the films at least I've picked she's just she's probably the best written female character but again what I love so much about our list is there are so many great men and women in all of these films which again I find so interesting considering boxing really boxing really is a predominantly male sport so I love that especially um like with earlier films they knew that women were also box office draws so they really wanted these well-written characters and these really wonderful actresses. And Barbara Stanwyck is just like the cream of the crop in everything. And this movie is just full of these really wonderful lines. Like um, she's trying to convince William Holden to get involved with boxing in the first in the, in the first place. And he kind of says something like, well, I don't know if I can take the chance. And she says something like we take a chance the day we're born. Why stop now? And the whole movie is just full of these gems. And it's just this wonderful, like quiet melodrama about whether he should go with his passion, but what doesn't make him money or do something that could permanently destroy him from ever doing that. But he's good at boxing. So, and you get to see those two sides of the coin. So it's a, it's a really, really wonderful film. I'll have to see if I can find this anywhere. I know you said it's hard to find, but... Uh, I'm a big William Holden fan, and I don't think I've ever seen him this young. I mean, 39, he's probably like under 25 at that point. Yeah, he's very, very young in this. I've seen his uh, his older stuff, like Towering Inferno and The Wild Bunch, but yeah, never been this far back, so I'll have to seek that out. Yeah, he's he's actually 21. 21 years so old, sa- wow. Same age as the character. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's... Uh, William Holden in Golden Boy from 1939. Okay, cool. We're at our grand finales here. We're at our number ones. When you said top five boxing movies, this was always going to be my number one. Um, It's kind of odd that it's my number one, considering I don't find it very rewatchable. I I think it's kind of an upsetting movie, but it absolutely does what it set out to do. And... I'm sure that you've seen this considering you took a Martin Scorsese class in college, but my number one is 1980's Raging Bull. The Bronx Bull, the Raging Bull. Let's hear for the great Jake LaMotta, ladies and gentlemen. I'm the best. And I can take him more than anybody. You're dead, you're married. Leave the young girls for me. There's no way I'm going down. I don't go down for nobody. Listen with him. Why does he have to make it so hard on himself? 
If you beat Sugar Ray, you'll get a shot at the title. You feel that way? Because no one else around wants to fight him. They're all afraid. There's a lot of bad things, Joey. Maybe it's coming back to me. This one, of course, stars Robert De Niro as Jake LaMotta. It's also got, um, continuing with our theme of really well-drawn women, we have uh, Kathy Moriarty playing his girlfriend and then wife, and then we have Joe Pesci playing his brother, Joey. Um, IMDb describes Raging Bull as the life of boxer Jake LaMotta, whose violence and temper that led him to the top in the ring destroyed his life outside of it, and it perfectly encapsulates that. Robert De Niro really wanted to make this movie after reading Jake LaMotta's autobiography, and he had been bugging Scorsese for years to make this. And then New York, New York came out. It did not light the box office on fire. He had a cocaine overdose that almost killed him, and De Niro came to visit him in the hospital, and they just really started talking about making something else, and this is what they decided to do. To prep for this role, De Niro trained with the real Jake LaMotta, and he went so far as to get into the ring three times. He had three scheduled fights and once he knew what he was doing, and two of those fights he actually won. Jake LaMotta said that De Niro was one of the top 20 middleweight fighters in the world, which is uh, it's saying a lot. That being said, Jake LaMotta is not a character you're going to root for. This is a, a guy that is destructive, abusive, he's insecure, he's just a brute who's filled with rage and jealousy. It's, it's one of those scenarios where, in his eyes, women are either virgins or whores. And even if they're sleeping with him, that, that means to him that they want to sleep with everybody else. And his sexual insecurity is one of his ultimate downfalls that we see play out on screen, both in his scenes with Kathy Moriarty, but also in the ring because these kind of like this rage and jealousy is fueling his in ring punches. This is really one of Robert De Niro's best on screen performances, in my opinion. It's not subtle, but he's just doing so much with his face. It's not like he's describing how he's feeling. You just know how he's feeling from what he's doing with his face. Um, and the, the in ring action, it's brutal but the film is shot the the boxing scenes are shot in a way that's completely different from everything else on my list it's like they're shot almost in this whimsical dreamlike fashion with operatic music in the background sometimes there's animal noises in the background it's very surreal um scorsese was not a sports fan and he was not a sports movie fan and so he used his own touches to make these battle scenes but um as good as those boxing scenes are, in my opinion, which are also really bloody. I, I did not remember how bloody they were, which is one of the reasons why it might have been shot in black and white. But for all of those amazing scenes in the ring, it's those scenes outside of the ring that I think are the best, and specifically one between Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci, in which De Niro's character is uh, accusing Joe Pesci of sleeping with his wife. Um, this was nominated for eight Academy Awards, Best Actor for De Niro and Best Editing was uh, was won. It was the first Oscar for Thelma Schoonmaker, who was Scorsese's longtime editor, who ended up winning two others with him, um, one for The Departed and uh, one for The Aviator, I believe. And she was nominated for four others, all Scorsese films, aside from her uh, 1970 film Woodstock that she edited. So my number one was always going to be Raging Bull. Again, not the most rewatchable. 
and definitely not the most fun movie, but in my opinion, it is the best boxing movie that I've ever seen. How do you feel about Raging Bull at at number one here for me? I am so happy it is here because this is also my number one. Oh, awesome. <laughs> and you, it's, I, I wholeheartedly agree with everything that you said because I too do not enjoy watching this movie. (laughs) I've seen it quite a few times and every couple of years when I see it play on the big screen, I go um, and see it again. I think I I bought it on Criterion and my husband Mm -hmm. was like, "You, why? You're never going to watch this. And I'm like, but... I love Marty so much and I I like I like this movie so much. Yeah, exactly. I deserve it in case I ever want to watch it. It just really is a rough watch. Um I think it's because Scorsese does not like boxing that makes it so great. It really dissects the sport and the people involved with it and like what do these people have to be like to to be this person and I mean, to like Jake LaMotta's credit, they like pull not they hold nothing back. And I can't imagine, I don't know if I were this type of person be, I mean, they base off his book, but you know what I mean? Like, I just can't imagine this being what ends up being filmed about me. And it's just so truthful. And so, and I don't like love that word with film, but it's just really, really, again, Scorsese's dissecting everything. And I think, yeah, because he is not a fan of it, it makes him like the better spectator almost. And I was reading actually today, I was doing a little more research on the film and uh, he went to two boxing matches to prepare. And he said that the things he really noticed were the sponges on like the face to get the blood off and then like the bloody bucket and the amount of blood that wound up on the actual rings. And he apparently turned to him, like said to himself while watching the match, like this is a sport, like all, (laughs) all this blood, this is what this is all for. And he really, I just think I like how incredible that someone who's not into this at all could make like the ultimate boxing movie. And it's like, even if you don't enjoy watching it, it can't not be number one. And I think also because as you were saying, like the, the actual boxing scenes are filmed so like beautifully or they're really violent and they're also operatic. It's like all of these things in one and each boxing scene is actually filmed in the style of how different older boxing films film their boxing scenes because almost all boxing films like in the 30s and 40s and 50s, they all have a slightly different look to them. And I think the one that stands out the most is a movie I really wanted to put on here, um, but I was worried about recency bias because I just watched it a couple of weeks ago called Champion with Kirk Douglas. And it's essentially where like the ring is very white and bright and you just see the ring and the ropes and then everything else is kind of blacked out. And that's the one that stood out to me the most. I remember thinking like, oh, that was the movie I didn't like. I couldn't figure out which one this was in Raging Bull, but absolutely like Golden Boy, Somebody Up There Likes Me. Those are all these matches are in Raging Bull. And I just love what a way for someone who doesn't love boxing and doesn't love sports, but so immensely loves film. And what a better way to pay homage to older boxing films than to 
you know, uh, match up stylistically to the way they've done things. And I just think that also helps make it like the best boxing movie because it's nodding to everything that came before it as well, while like really breaking new ground with the representation of Jake and everything. Jake is probably the most vile character out of any of these films. Oh, yeah. Like hands down. The uh, Just the opening credits alone are mesmerizing and kind of tell you a lot about Jake LaMotta as we just have him shadow boxing in the ring, almost like he's fighting himself as the, as the credits roll in this black and white, uh, almost like picture frame esque shot. I, I just love it so much. And it's awesome that it was both our number ones because it was like the old converging with the new at this like peak of boxing cinema for us. That's super cool. Yeah, it's just like it is really just a culmination of everything that comes before it and then everything after it, you just feel like it has a nod to Raging Bull. Like every boxing movie that came after, you can't it's just like it's it's always there. Just like effervescent. Yeah, this is one that I am picking up with the uh half-off Criterion sale that's going on right now. I think they just put it out in 4K, so I'm going to pick that up. Amazing. <laughs> whether again, whether you'll watch it all the time. <laughs> oh, oh, <laughs> at, least yeah. it's, at least it's there. <laughs> um, well, we have our top fives on the board. Did you have any honorable mentions you wanted to mention real quick of things that you would have put on your list if it was like a top 10? Yeah. So I three that were the ones I was debating between which you had the setup, which was amazing. Um, but Champion, the Kirk Douglas film I had just mentioned is also a very dark, cynical noir where his boxer is probably the uh, maybe closest to Jake LaMotta, not as horrible because censorship still exists in 1949. So we don't yeah. really get to see all of that. But he's a pretty despicable person, probably the most ambitious boxer I've ever seen in a film and just truly does not care whose life he tramples on to get to where he wants to be. And then it really the movie questions like, what is this all worth? That's a really great one. Um, The Champ from 1931 with Wallace Beery that's remade in, I think, 1978 with John Voight um, is a really interesting film about a, a man who used to box and still kind of does, and he's in Mexico and just really doesn't have his life together, but has a, a really young son who just idolizes and looks up to him. And so that's a really interesting family movie where boxing's not really in the forefront but it's still why he's in the situation that he's in. And it's almost like this is what happens to boxers when they get punched too many times and they're older. This is what can happen to them. So that is like a really interesting look on boxing. And then I <laughs> really wanted to put this one in here, but it just didn't feel right. Um, the Gene Kelly Stanley Donna musical, It's Always Fair Weather, uh, where Gene Kelly plays a guy who wins a boxer in a gambling match. And... Half the movie involves boxing. There are two musical numbers involving boxing. One with Sid Cherise called Baby You Knock Me Out, where she's dancing in a ring, and it's amazing. And then one right before called Stillman's Gym, and it's all based on real boxers, and they have actual boxers in the gym when she's there and they're all kind of showing off to her. And there's this, just this amazing musical number with like all these like really heavy New Yorkers 
And it's just, it's incredible. It feels like this like method dancing number. It's, it's really wonderful. Uh, the movie itself just really isn't about boxing, but the Gene Kelly storyline all is. And he ends up knocking out his fighter when he realizes he's going to take a dive. And then like the boxing, all the crooked mobsters and everyone are kind of after him. But it's really just, it's a movie about um, fading friendship and what happens when men come back from the war and that camaraderie that they all had isn't in life anymore and how different their life is and how the wars change them. So it's a very, very sweet movie about friendship that really has this like boxing undertone. So I really wanted that to be my number five, but it just didn't quite feel right. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I was like, how up. do we get a musical on here? And my husband was like, you got to put it on here. And I'm like, oh, but it's not really about boxing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had a couple of honorable mentions much like your last one there, uh, this one I didn't put on because, number one, it didn't feel right uh, because of its tone. And then number two, because I ordered it from Shout Factory at the beginning of October and I still haven't received it. I wanted to rewatch it for this, but Teen Wolf 2 almost made my list. <laughs> I have not. I've only seen Teen Wolf. I did not know there was a second one. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, the second one stars Jason Bateman, a young Jason Bateman, which is uh, amazing. Yeah, and it's, it centers around boxing. Um, I also thought about putting the hurricane on here, much like uh, Southpaw for me. Like the the main reason I love Southpaw is Jake Gyllenhaal's performance. The main reason I love the hurricane is for Denzel's performance. But I didn't want to put two uh, similar films on here. And then the the last one that I ultimately left off because it's not just about boxing. It's just kind of a small part of it is Guy Ritchie's film Snatch which has a uh, bare knuckle boxing in it, but it's not like necessarily the point of the movie. So that's why I left it off. I think that's so funny that we both have, you know, like three or four movies where I, I think that's great. It's you, you don't want to have something too similar on there. And then you feel badly putting something that's not really the where the forefront isn't boxing because there are so many great boxing movies about boxing or boxers or some aspect of it where it really does fill up the majority of the film space so i feel like that's that's fun there are so many other things that you could explore with a little less boxing that still feel like boxing movies but i feel like we did i i think we did the right thing <laughs> yeah i list. think we i think we did your your topic justice here top five boxing films now people have over 10 recommendations to go check out. Oriana, amazing list. Thanks so much for coming on. Make sure to go check out Hollywoodography. You can find it anywhere you just listened to this. Um, anything else you want to plug, Oriana? Pe where where can people find you online? Um, I am on Instagram at Oriana Nudo. Um, I, I have a Twitter, but I barely use it. Um, I feel like it's mostly when I end up doing... Um, uh, my friend, uh, my friend shows us that screen drafts. That's, I feel like when I end up going on the most, uh, cause there's so many amazing film conversations about at, like every topic it's, they have such a great account. Um, but yeah, that that's pretty much it. And thank you so much for having me. This was such a blast. Executive producers on this episode include Peter Beta from the middle-class film class, Musa Mahmood, Rupert Bumblestein, and our newest producer, Ryan Goland of the New World Pictures Podcast. Ryan, thank you so much for your support and all of my executive producers. Remember to review the Force 5 podcast wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends about the show. Those two things you can do are free. They're very simple, but they help the audience grow and they really help me out. And of course, if you want more Force 5, you want to support me, uh, patreon.com backslash Force 5. A lot of good stuff going on there. 
You can find Force 5 on social media at Force5Pod on Twitter, at Force5Podcast on Instagram, and you can always talk film with me on the Cinematics Facebook page. The theme song comes courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go watch some incredible boxing movies. I guess all actors aren't complete pieces of shit.